This is Mom Squad Pod, your weekly update on tips, tricks, and all things parenting with Maureen Kyle.
my daughter was just about 18 months when I took her because we figured she was a baby, wasn't walking, and we were pretty safe with um, you know, a six-month-old. So at 18 months, I was starting to get a little bit to float on their back for four, count to four, then try and swim to the side for four seconds and reach and grab something. I think if I was to pick one big risk and the biggest risk, Maureen, it probably would be supervision. And that's as simple as it is. That said, um, drowning is one of the biggest reasons of death in young ones, especially the one to three years of age. Causes about, we have documented about 4,000 deaths because of drowning every year and about 8,000 non-fatal drowning incidents, which means near drowning and um, things in that spectrum. So this is obviously an epidemic. 11 kids die every single day because of drowning. 
So what can we do? I think we need to take a very systematic approach, and that's how I usually like to talk about it, is a systematic approach in choosing the pool wisely or the body of water. So making sure that all the external circumstances around the, the event of swimming are safe. And then secondly, things to do when the kids are in the pool and are in the water. And then things to do if an accident happens, because accidents can happen. So I think going back to the first one is starting with something as simple as making sure that the pool is fenced, has appropriate drains, drain covers. Um, if it's a larger rec center, community center kind of a pool, uh, then there are appropriate safeguards present around it. I advise parents and fact that if you have a fenced pool, that you don't have any furniture around it, which means the kids can't climb over and get into it. Um, if you have a pool and there is any child in the house which is missing, that's the first place you always check because that's death can happen very, very quickly and instantly. The second biggest thing is supervision. One designated person per child. It sounds onerous and it probably is to a large extent, but retrospectively, that's one life saved. And that's, that's all that matters. Um, and so if you have young ones who are, you know, in that stage of learning to swim and not quite adept with swimming, then really the adult has to be in the pool with the with the kid and or in the water body. We'll, we'll stick with pool for right now. Um, and that's within six feet. So really within an arm's reach of the child has to be an adult. Now, when the kids are older and are good swimmers and or are you know safely in the swimming pool with appropriate equipment, I think it's still very, very important to have a designated person who is watching, just like a designated driver, somebody who does not have any distractions. They are not using their cell phones. They're not engrossed in multitasking, socializing with friends, because that is the that is the most common scenario. You know, most of these drowning accidents don't happen at um, at rec centers or where it's supervised. They really happen in smaller settings, and that's because people think it's much more safer in those settings, and they let their guard down. Um, similarly, if you are planning to go swimming in the lake, then making sure you read the instructions. What, what is the tide like? What are the waves like? You've got to be very, very careful. Um, I strongly discourage young little ones from wading more than maybe a foot or more in, in like large lakes and stuff, just because things can change on a, on a dime. Um, and so I'm very, very apprehensive about that, but you know, Playing in the water, it's just the most fun thing to do in summer. We don't want to take it away from the kids. So being very, very careful and cognizant. Now, if something does happen, drownings are not loud. Drownings are not as dramatized and, and, and big and loud as sometimes you see on, on movies and stuff like that. They are really, really sometimes very quiet. A child can choke, gasp, and then they're down and they're out. So really being that, that vigilant person, making sure that you know, you have those, um, if you are, if you are swimming in and the kids are good swimmers, then making sure that they're always coupled, that there's always somebody to go with you and an adult watching you. So multiple layers. Uh, when my kids were younger and, and Shannon knows we've talked about this so often, um, I would make them wear um, really, really, really loud swim suits. And the reason is because I wanted to spot them amongst all the blues, greens, yellows, which were very, very common. And and when you come to a jam-packed pool and everyone's having fun, you it's 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 very human to let your guard down a little bit. Um, but again, I think unfortunately we've seen 
many tragedies happen such that it's uh, it's almost like I'm on high alert at that point. Now, what happens if there is an accident? What happens if there is a tragedy and there is a case of drowning and or near drowning? And we'll talk a little bit more about that. First thing is CPR. Appropriate CPR started at the site. A multiple amount of studies will show you that good CPR at site has that that child, that kid has a much better rate and much better success with overcoming what might lie ahead of him or her at the hospital if they were initiated with good CPR. So don't be afraid. Don't be scared as a bystander, as a family member. Um, again, making sure that somebody around you is always trained in CPR or knows CPR. But even if you're not formally trained, I urge you to think common sense and start because even that bit of it can really be helpful. Um, and then, you know, what is the difference between near drowning, drowning, and what happens if you, the child gets in a pool, takes a couple of sips of water by accident and chokes and coughs and, and parents get really upset about what will happen now versus what will happen six hours from now if he coughs again. Um, I think we really talk about drowning in terms of submersion. So if the child is submerged and or immersed in the water um, and has symptoms as in drowning symptoms, then they are to be really watched carefully. Um, but taking a couple of sips as, as a toddler, as little ones, we're still learning how to swim. Um, again, I would not tell the parents it's a clean shit, nothing to worry about. I always tell parents to be carefully watching out for symptoms. And what symptoms do you watch out for? Really, you really watch out for excessive cough and high fevers, which start within six to eight hours, which means did they ingest that water and is the, are they getting any kind of an infection? If they are truly to have a drowning and or a near drowning incident, um, the, the things which are at the site are a bit more obvious in terms of there is a struggle to breathe. They might have passed out. They might have unfortunately stop breathing, their heart might stop working. Um, and that's all because of the lack of oxygen to the brain because of the closure of the vocal cords and there's no airway. So they have a loss of oxygen and they just kind of slump down. Um, and that sad situation, the most important thing is to keep your common wits about you and start CPR. Do me a favor and remind everybody because I've taken CPR, I was a lifeguard for years. I've taken CPR even to become a babysitter. And then with all my toddlers, we went through that class. And then I feel like in the moment you, you forget, okay, wait, what am I supposed to do? How many chest compressions? How should, how many should I count? How many breaths? What is the, the key to CPR? So the biggest thing is CAB. So we used to do ABC, airway breathing circulation. And now we have gone to CAB, which is circulation airway breathing, which means you start with chest compression. That's the first thing you start with chest compressions, you open the airway as much as you potentially can and start giving rescue breaths. I can give you numbers and I can get you exact information. But as you said, Maureen, in the heat of the moment, you can, a bystander who's never done CPR, it's very scary. It's very, very high. I mean, I do this for a living and it's high stress in a very controlled environment. So I don't expect people to follow the exact numbers and strengths, but really it's starting with chest compressions effective chest compressions. We can talk about this for hours, um, but effective chest compressions and then followed by rescue breathing is probably the most important thing. Of course, everything is as somebody around you is calling 911. Like you've got to, it's like a scoop and run. So you don't want to spend time at the site doing CPR and then calling for help. It's always like you start CPR and then somebody's calling 911 and getting the appropriate help. 
we tend to see that risks for lead exposure do go up in the summer months, and there are a few different reasons for that. Uh, one of them is that kids are playing outside more, and we know that bare soil around some homes can be contaminated with soil, and so if kids are playing in their own yards, uh, there is increased risk for lead exposure there. Um, so making sure that you know any play areas that they might have outdoors are not bare soil, are covered in some way, um, can be very helpful. Leaving shoes at the door so that you're not tracking that dirt into the home can also be helpful. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is that we know that one of the very common uh, places where we find lead paint in homes is around the windowsills. And in the summer, we're doing a lot of opening and closing of our windows. And so there's a chance that that could actually lead to kind of uh, faster deterioration of that lead paint, chipping and formation of lead dust that kids can then either inhale or ingest. And then another thing that we see in the summer is that people are doing a lot more home renovations. And so if they're um, affecting areas that might have lead contamination in the home, we again will see that the dust generated from those projects goes throughout the home and can carry lead particles as well. Yeah. And, and Northeast Ohio in general, I mean, we have a lot of really old neighborhoods. So is that a concern specifically for our area? Absolutely. So we know that before 1978 is what we call the lead paint era. So that's when uh, lead paint was banned was uh, in, in the late 70s. And so we know that two thirds of Ohio's housing stock was built in that lead paint era. And so most of the homes that our families live in uh, are affected by lead paint. And we know that in Cuyahoga County in Northeast Ohio in the city of Cleveland, it's approximately 80% of cases of lead poisoning that we can trace back to lead paint specifically. I have a question because my home was built in 1978. So I'm on that, like, I'm on that cusp. So whenever I hear this statistic, I always wonder, wait, so am I included in that or is, am I? I would assume safe? you are just okay. to be on the safe side. Yeah. Um, but um, if you've had, uh, you know, if you have children and they've been tested mm -hmm. and their lead levels are normal, um, then, you know, you're, you're probably in the clear then. Okay. And that's another big question. I mean, how do you know that maybe your kids have been exposed and, and they are dangerous levels? Because I feel like this is somewhat of a silent danger until you start to realize something's wrong. Absolutely. It is a silent danger. And so that's why, you know, we don't really see in uh, kids that come into our office, we don't necessarily see a, a certain set of symptoms that would tell us that this is lead poisoning. It is very vague. Um, if we do see symptoms, there'll be things like difficulty sleeping, irritability, behavior changes, um, things like that. So that's why we do universal screening. At the ages of one and two, we will do questionnaires. And if there are any risk factors for lead exposure, including age of the home, if you're doing renovations, if you've had a sibling who's been uh, lead poisoned, if you're on Medicaid or a high-risk zip code. And so if you say yes or you don't know to any of those questions, your pediatrician will order a lead level for your child. Um, and beyond the age of two, we still ask those questions. And if there's any ongoing risk, aside from insurance status or uh, zip code, we will continue to test just because we want to make sure that those kids are still safe. So I think we're most frightened about lead dangers as I've covered lead exposure, um, you know, through other stores as well. When we talk about, you know, housing is, is up to par, 
just how silent it is and how it's not something super obvious like a drowning. It's something that, you know, all those other symptoms that, that fall under that category where I would I would guess that it was a million other reasons other than that right. cell phone. Yeah, and the symptoms that you said, they're not easily detectable, but you can connect yeah. the dots with lead. Yeah. You know, because like you said, it's kind of more neurological. Right. I assume that just it, and you and I just just banter on it that it it affects the lungs a little bit more uh, mm-hmm. than breathing. But like you said, it's kind of not that bad. It yeah. affects the brain. Right. And so does it make you think twice about where you're letting Cairo a play? <laughs> I'm thinking no playgrounds for us, no pools, no playgrounds. For right. Us. No. I mean, obviously, that's what's hard about all of this. I mean, it's what's hard about parenting. You get all of this information. Um, there's dangers everywhere. I mean, I'm thinking, okay, like, I hope my kids aren't just, you know, I don't know. I mean, if you spend months digging in the dirt, maybe, you know, your exposure goes up. But I'm going to let them play in the dirt and try to not worry about it. Look for those symptoms. I mean, know your surroundings. I'm sure city halls have records of, like, how much lead exposure they've had and reports of incidents because of building inspectors have to go around so if it is a major concern if you're sitting here thinking oh my gosh i live in a neighborhood that was built before 1978 what am i you know what are my uh issues what are my instances that i have to worry about i mean for me my house was built in 1978 so i'm always like okay well where do we where do we fall then um so those are all questions of course you can always ask your pediatrician certainly I hope everybody has a safe summer. I'm hoping that we're not telling you this to freak you out. We no. just want you to know what's going on. I know. Well, I just don't want any reports of like ice cream is dangerous. As long as like ice cream popsicles are safe and and we're good. You know, we just want to go out and enjoy the warm weather. Of course, be safe out there. Have fun with your kids. Um, just take as many precautions as you can, especially around pools, lakes, bodies of water. Carmen, thanks so much. Of course, thank you. It's always great to talk to it's you. Always fun. And thanks to all of you for joining us for the Mom Squad Pod. We'll see you right back here next time. Thanks for listening to Mom Squad Pod with Maureen Kyle from WKYC Studios. Subscribe now so you never miss an update. And find more on everything you heard here on WKYC.com and on the WKYC app.